Welcome to Consider This. On the occasion of our 100th episode, we recorded a Q&A conversation in front of a live audience while we live-streamed on the Sunnybrook Facebook page. Unfortunately, we had an audio problem for about the first 10 minutes, so we joined the conversation here already in progress. But with an hour left to go or more, there's plenty of material to enjoy here. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please contact Steve at sunnybrookcc.org or call the church office or just flag down one of the guys that are often on the microphones and have a chat. Enjoy. That the best way to understand that is talking about um, the coming of the, the church, the establishment of the church, and then the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, which all happened while that generation was alive. And so when you look at a lot of that language, which looks very cosmic and very uh, uh, judgment-oriented, mm-hmm. I think the best way to understand that material is in um, the coming in the church, the coming of the church, and uh, and the in the impending judgment on Jerusalem. Which would have happened in 70 AD. So many of those he was speaking to have still been alive at that time. Yeah, but, but there's a lot that's going on there. Yeah, and I'll say it's, it's interesting because it does look, it does sound very cosmic and very kind of into the world. I think a lot of times the Bible header in your Bible says like signs of the end of the age or something. Yeah. So it kind of leads you to believe that. But it is interesting when the church is birthed in Acts 2, Jesus, or sorry, Peter uses cosmic language to describe what's happening out of like the prophets yeah. from Amos. Yeah, and so cosmic doesn't have to mean way, way light years in the future. So. Let, me, let me say this too. It's interesting that you do the beginning of the question. I don't know who asked this question, but the beginning of the question was Jesus wrong. And without just glibly saying, well, he can never be wrong, which I believe because of who he is, his identity. Um, It's interesting that I would, if I had to begin by going, is Jesus wrong? Or are maybe we not able to fully understand or appreciate because of the time, because of all of the the different pieces that come into play when you're trying to interpret the scripture? I mean, we probably don't even have all the information, obviously. And so to just jump to, is Jesus wrong? Or is it this really simple, clear understanding really kind of shows a bias in terms of where that's going. So um, I think it's good for us to have a certain degree of humility on just the complexity of answering a difficult text. Sure. Okay, here's one. Uh, how do you love people in the church that you don't like? How do you love people in the church that maybe you don't like? Don't Ryan cannot answer this one. <laughs> he doesn't even Ryan, like me. He, I, mean, so. I was going to say, Ryan has the most experience with not liking people, so he should, <laughs> he should answer this. <laughs> um, I'll, I will jump in and say, I remember hearing growing up a lot that um, it's okay not to like people, but you have to love them. Um, I remember people saying that. You know what I mean? You don't have to like them, but you, but you do have to love them. And, and that seems to make sense at first, but I, I really have started to wonder about that. If that's, if that's possible for me to, um, I think it might be possible for me to love someone without, without liking them initially in, in the sense of like the biblical definition of love is that I put their needs before my own and their interests before my own. And so I seek to serve them regardless of how I feel about them. Um, but I don't know if as I'm doing that, if the Holy Spirit's working in me and I'm seeking their good, uh, I don't know how long I can do that without starting to, to have feelings of affection and friendship towards a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know that the two things, that to answer the question, I would say you, you act as though you do love them. So you begin to serve them. You place their needs first. You, you pray for them. And then you kind of trust the Holy Spirit to begin to move your heart in the direction of your body as you do those things. Have you experienced that? Have you ever uh, had 
don't look don't look at anyone else. Doesn't yeah. look at me. Act like yes. you hated me. Um, have you experienced that where you there was somebody you didn't get along with, you maybe didn't have a great relationship, you went through the process you're talking about, yeah. and now you do have an affection for them? Uh, well, my grandpa used to say when you grow up at a hundred or under 150 pounds, you just learn to get along with everybody, <laughs> and so that's kind of my thing. Uh, I, I you know I, I, there's not a ton of people that sure. I've just gone and just hey, but sure. I think I can say I have experienced that with people um, that. I don't know if I want to say didn't like, but rubbed me the wrong way. Maybe that sure. is. That's just a nice way of saying I didn't yeah. like them, I guess. So, yeah. yes, yeah. I have. As I've gotten to know people and, and seek to serve them and connect with them, it's not like we just become best friends. But I have, I, I've grown in my appreciation and gratefulness for my, my brother or sister. So. Well, and you even think of the, I think of this text a lot. But Paul says in Ephesians, um, in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, bear with one another. And this is a this is a context for a Christian community. And he says, bear with one another. And I think that's a little bit of what you're describing there, that there may not be this natural affection or the winsomeness of some people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you just absolutely are drawn to them. And then others, not so much. Um, but there's always this admonition that we love and that we uh, think of think of First Corinthians 13, um, how we bear with them, how we mm-hmm. are kind to them, how we don't let our initial thoughts or our initial feelings kind of govern our uh, literally our our response to them, mm-hmm. but we allow something much deeper than that, which is God's love for us and God's love for them. That's good. Um, yeah, I I. I have no problem with the the caricature of the the Ryan that's kind of rough around the edges and gets frustrated with people quickly. But one of the things that I've really taken a lot of joy in is um, lately I've he- I've had a number of people say you're getting softer as you get older, mm-hmm. and uh, and I really think what what's happening is. Um, it's kind of like what Drew's describing is that my heart is starting to form around what I know I ought to do and what I know I ought to think uh, about people. And so there are so many people who bear the image of God that um, we're not a whole lot alike and we're not going to run around in the same circles. But when I just spend time with them, I find myself over the years defending them. Like, but yeah, but you don't know him. Yeah. And it's like three years ago, I'd have been the guy I'd be like, man, you know what's really kind of wears me out about so-and-so? But it's like, yeah, as I spend time with people, caring for them and serving them, even if it's just out of some degree of obligation, over time, I, it's interesting how my, my thoughts and emotions catch up to that truth. Well, and I think it's really important that we become a people that are um, biblically principled instead of just emotively driven. And so I think it's just something about uh, more of a, a childish way of looking at things or even a childish way of dealing with your own emotions. If, if you can't think through about doing the right thing um, or responding to anybody in the right way, Jesus says to pray for your enemies. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't say, you know, treat everybody like they're even the same. But no, you pray for your enemies. You love those who are persecuting you. And so we are a biblically centered people, which, by the way, our emotions then come in with it, as, as, uh, as, as these guys were describing. Yeah, sometimes, you know, we tend to function as if our heart, our feelings, our emotions drive us. Yep. They kind of are the center of us. Sometimes we do have to let our mind what's true. Like, no, this is somebody who's considered a brother or a sister. And now I need to have my heart changed. And I think what Drew laid out as a process for that. It takes time, sure, but it has to happen in the church or else we kind of just avoid people, which is going to make eternity a little awkward. Um, Okay, on the other side of that, on the other side of that, what do you do and how is it supposed to work when somebody you do like, you do love, hurts you, like deeply hurts you? 
are you supposed to just, is everything supposed to be okay because we're Christians and I'm supposed to just forgive them and everything's supposed to be the same? How, how, do, how am I supposed to respond when someone actually does hurt me? It's amazing how, like, that question gets complicated whenever we just really don't want to talk about it. <laughs> you know, oftentimes it's just, it's a matter of, you know, if you do something to me, I, I need to give you an opportunity to at least hear what I'm thinking and then to repent. But so often that's step number seven or eight in our plan to deal with this. The first step is to ignore them. The second step is to go talk about them with somebody else. And the third step is to just go over here and be bitter when really I, I should have just called you. And, and maybe, you know, anxiety plays a role in that. Maybe I just, I'm worried about an awkward conversation. But in, in the end, the, 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 the primary first move was to call a brother or a sister and to say, hey, can we, can we get together and talk? Um, I might be wrong, but um, I, I feel like we need, some, we need to work some things out. And so often the problem is much more complex than it has to be because we won't do that. You know what I mean? Uh, two, two quick rules that I don't always follow well, but I try to remind myself is, uh, first is give them the benefit of the doubt that I know most of my friends that I like and love are not going to intentionally try to hurt me. And so I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. And then secondly, I've, I've learned, and this is something in marriage I've had to learn a lot like, I don't, I don't know that I can be mad at someone uh, if I have not given them the chance to repent or even know that something happened. So if I, don't, if I won't say something to them, about this, the way this hurt me, then I don't know that I've got the right to stay angry at them for something they don't even know about. And so those are kind of two quick rules I try to follow with that. I would say almost 10 times out of 10, when I talk with somebody about, or even if I'm, you know, not necessarily that they've even hurt me, there's so much more that's going on in people's lives. There's so much more going on in terms of how they got there and this, as, as the story begins to unfold. And so I'm amazed at how I know exactly why Tim did it this way, or I know exactly why Brett did this. And then w once you go and you talk to them, you realize, wow, there's a lot more that is going on. Um, it really is a very humbling thing. And the, the number one principle, I'm, I'm actually writing on this, working on my, on, my, on my degree, it's interesting how much that if we just stop and think that it is our responsibility to act towards others the way God acts towards us, if you can just say that out loud, I am now going to treat Morgan the way God has treat, treated me. And your next step is just a no-brainer. It's when we disconnect from that, is when we disconnect and go, no, I just, I'm mad. Really? Okay, but go back and say step one. I, how has God treated me? I must treat the other person like that. I don't know how you don't become a minister of reconciliation if, uh, uh, you, know, if, if you begin there. So a little bit, can, a new question and a little bit basing off what you've said. Um, somebody online said, when you look around at Sunnybrook, there's people from so many different backgrounds. How do, it, it seems like it would be impossible to achieve unity how do we as a staff try to foster that kind of unity within our congregation? And a little bit, I don't know that we answered it fully. What is a relationship supposed to look like after there has been some deep hurt? The same or different or those, those are two different questions. Yeah. Uh, let, me, let me take let the first, let me take the first one real quick. Okay. You know, I, I love the idea and, and more or less, I love, I love tough conversations. We are in a, uh, an absolutely politically charged and controversial and everybody's angry at everybody kind of a, a last, I would even say almost the last eight or nine or 10 years. 
And I know a lot of people at this church that have very different uh, political ideology, political understanding. And so I'm going to use that as a test case, not that that's even the primary case, but as a test case that there are much, many different ways to approach, say, the, the, the issue of politics. So how do we become unified? And the answer is, is that the unifying factor is not my political ideology, but my belief in God and my belief in Jesus, my belief in the scriptures, my belief in salvation by grace through faith, my belief in the kingdom. And once you begin to prioritize that, then it's really easy to have this incredible diversity. I don't even know if I'm ready at this point to just celebrate diversity for the sake of diversity. But how you're able to stay united and how the, I believe the church should stay united is just to work through the, uh, the, 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 the pyramid of, of either needs or priorities and just make sure the most important things are the first things. And so um, it's okay that if you're not a Miami Hurricanes football fan. I mean, I forgive you, and I'm willing to offer you um, uh, an opportunity to repent and forgive and to seek the truth and all that. Um, but, no, but the truth is, is that football doesn't matter. And so when you have Jesus as Lord and when you have the kingdom as your primary focus, um, I think, again, that really helps us keep the main thing the main thing. And I'm a very opinionated, very strongly – it's hard – it has been in the past – hard for me to get over people who have divergent views on matters, even of opinion. And it has been such a, a blessing to me to just stop and go, but wait a second, like we both, we both love Jesus and we both are in this kingdom. And therefore, I'm not going to let these other issues, which I don't know how they got there. I don't, makes no sense to me how they got there, but it's not the primary thing. And I think that's how we need to, we need to keep the unity on the matters of the faith. And then the other things... Yeah, and I, I think that, that most Sunnybrookers are going to instinctively hear, yeah, you don't have to be a Miami Hurricane fan and say, well, yeah. of course that doesn't matter. But then yeah. they'll say, but it matters. Like uh, your political position matters a lot more than that. And it's really important for us, it, as difficult as it may be, it's very important for us to recognize that in terms of like the spectrum of things that matter, Republican v. Democrat is far closer to Miami v. Florida uh, yeah. Seminole. Yes than it is to like unity in Christ. Yes. And we want to float this political, like where, where you land on certain issues politically, we want to float that up far too close to unity in Christ. Or even theologically, yes. right? I mean, this is the part that I love. I mean, I, th I think we're living in a really interesting time where there is a tremendous, you mentioned one of our podcasts that was popular was what do we think of other churches? And I think people probably picked that up because they wanted to see you know, who we don't like and whether or not we're jealous of and all that kind of stuff. But it was really good for us to like celebrate the ministry of a number of churches that we just love and, and cherish. And it's not that there are theological differences that I have with my brother in Christ, Brent Prentice. Um, it, it's not that those, th that he's not deeply convicted or I'm not deeply convicted, but let's talk about what we share in, in terms of a devotion to the word of God and a devotion to all of these other pieces. So, you know, whether it's political or even theological, um, we're allowed to have room for and then unity around. Mm -hmm. That's good. Okay, here's one from today. Uh, today at staff meeting, at the very end, Jim had us um, had a list of 10 <laughs> chapters of the Bible, um, some Old Testament, some New Testament, and said, rank these in order of importance. And we went around the room and everyone said, what's your most important? What's your least important? What's your second? Um, so for you all, what is the most important chapter of the Bible? And you can't say what someone else said before. It, to be fair. What, what are you pointing at me for? You get to go first. I okay, gotcha, you. gotcha. Um, 
I got like three or four in in my head right now. But <laughs> we just uh, we just we just taught on Romans three at uh, at the table on Thursday night, and and it is hard to get around, particularly the back end of that twenty one through twenty six, as you know, one that a yeah. lot of a lot of people say. You know, there's some who say that's the most important paragraph ever written in history. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that, and so Romans three is a big one for me. Mm-hmm. The other like top three are in Romans two, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and what good. book are you currently teaching right now? Romans. Yes. Romans. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Uh, I said Genesis one um, okay. in particular because I, I even changed the the prompt in order to answer the question. So the question was, <laughs> which is the most important passage? And I knew that there was a passage that I thought was probably more important, but I didn't want to answer that way because I was thinking of how would I establish that it's more important? How would I establish that a resurrection passage is the most important passage? I needed Genesis 1. If, not, if, if that is not true, if God did not create and God does not sovereignly own everything else that exists, I can't talk about a resurrection. So that's why I landed in Genesis 1. Okay. Um, I went to the, we had one of the examples was Luke 23, 24, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I went there. Um, and so I would do that in any of the gospels. To me, everything revolves around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I guess I just presume what, what Ryan, what Ryan said, but I like his, I like his point. Um, if I had to pick a text on it, I would probably go to Ephesians two, mm-hmm. one through 10. And then the development of that from 11 through the end of the chapter yeah. in terms of what that looks like in terms of the unity, I would say Ephesians two is uh, uh, maybe the, the most important chapter in the Bible. I could go with that. I could do, go with that. Do, even as I'm thinking, I'm like, dang, Romans 3, I don't think has resurrection in it, which is <laughs> kind of a deal. You know what I mean? So, the, But even as but I'm thinking through it, it's got, got the teach. fruit of it. Yeah, so I could, I can, Genesis 1 doesn't have resurrection either, though. It's a long way off from resurrection. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, even Ryan's as I'm using Genesis 1 so that he can then just talk to them for the rest of the Bible. Because <laughs> yes, uh-huh. yeah. after he's done Genesis 1, he's going, and let me tell you about 2. Let me tell you about the <laughs> second most about important chapter. Genesis 2. And let me tell you about 4. My second second most important chapter was Revelation 21. I want the book in so I can do everything in the between. Well, if I, yeah, if I wasn't going to go with one of those, I would say Revelation 21 and 22 is what I, I think I end up talking about the most if I'm just talking. Just okay, well, then reality. I would say Revelation 4 and 5. Oh, yeah. Because that is the centrality of the worship of God and the worship That's of good. his son, Way Jesus Christ. Um, all right. So uh, just so you know, Ryan, Tracy Van Brooker agrees with you. So sweet. A point for you. Okay, did I get any points? No, no points. Um, yeah, Paul would, according to 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul gives you a point from heaven. There you go. From heaven. <laughs> All right. A um, little lighter side. What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite movie and why? Okay, I'll do it quick. Amadeus, because it's awesome. Amadeus. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I grew up a movie. watching The Princess Bride with my dad like twice a week. That's so awesome. that one matters a lot to me. I'm going to go uh, Dark Horse. I'm going That Thing You Do. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, That Thing You Do. Yep. So grew up. Well, we wore that VHS tape out uh, when we were kids watching that one over and over again. So if you didn't choose Lord of the Rings, you're wrong. So well, I would have chosen Lord but that's a trilogy. I can't uh, obey the rules. Well. Okay. <laughs> Respect the game. <laughs> okay. Um, here is, here's another one. Do we need another church in Stillwater? <laughs> Do we need another church in Stillwater? Um, is there one planting that, that we're going to get in trouble? What we say I don't, I, I assume yes. Yeah. Um, so should we plant churches, maybe not just in Stillwater, maybe a more fair question. Does the Bible Belt, does the Midwest need more churches? Let's stick to Stillwater. Okay. Let's <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, 
Um, man, on the fly, I'm trying to think of think through this. Here's, man, dang it. Okay. <laughs> My initial is to go, man, I would prefer, I, I remember hearing about a church that had come from like Denver to plant here. And, uh, and I remember thinking, man, I feels like Denver might be able to use some more, you know what I mean? More than so, so I remember like having this struggle in my, my mind trying to go, it, it seems like we ought to be focusing more on, uh, what do you want to say? Bigger cities, unreached cities, unreached parts of the country. And I think I, I, I leaned that way. And yet there are a couple things I can't get around. One is that there's still a whole lot of lost people in Stillwater. Um, and, and there's a lot of uh, Christians who need discipled in Stillwater. And another thing is I cannot get around a man or woman's calling. And I don't know exactly what, what's going on. But if, if someone has been if someone feels like the spirit is placed on their heart to plant the church here, they might be going, this sounds as crazy to me as it does to you, uh, but this is what I want to do. And, and I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to argue with the person who, who feels that, you know? Yeah. Go ahead. The, well, the one quick thing I would add, which is similar to that, is Paul makes a very statement that I'm very careful judging somebody else's servant. Now, he's talking about a little bit of a different context, but that's kind of where I ultimately reside as well. It may not make sense to me. It may not seem like it's the, the most logical thing to do, but I'm going to allow God to be the one who, you know, organizes that, orchestrates that, fulfills that. And, uh, and so it's, it's really not my, my job to make the final assessment or judgment. Yeah. It's above and, my pay grade. And, and one of the reasons I think this is even a question here, it's probably not a question in Denver or Chicago, where there are still lots of churches. Um, but it's a question here because w w what, what people have seen is that there's this, there's this attraction sometimes for church plants to go to a young town, particularly with a college campus. It looks like it's a, a, a field ripe for the harvest. And in many cases, that's true. And then um, what, what you could say is you could, you could legitimately say, well, you're gonna spend years floundering with an under-resourced situation with no um, building to meet in and and really what you probably should have done is probably try to go help the other church in your exact same denomination that's already established in your in your town and and you could have hit the ball a little farther in that situation but then we have to always default back to yeah but that's not my place to say yeah. and they might have been called here and uh and the, though they, they, they don't have the resources of the bigger church that's, again, in the same tradition or denomination, they're still doing good with what they have, and they're making disciples at whatever rate. And so it's a complicated question and probably not one that any of us have the ability to give the final answer on. Mm -hmm. Yep, I, I kind of default to <clears throat> it, there's probably people in Stillwater who haven't heard the gospel or at least haven't responded appropriately to the gospel, and therefore, sure, more people communicating the gospel and ministering to folks in Stillwater who don't have a right relation with God is a good thing. At the same time, it's, it's like we've all said, the Lord gets to judge that, and wisdom is proven true over time. And 1 Corinthians 3 talks about, you know, you have different type of works that we're all going to do in the name of Christ. Some is gold and silver, and it's going to be proven true. Some is hay and chaff and wheat. It's going to be burned up. And so, yeah, God gets to make that call in the end. So... Yes. Um, here's a good question. What is something in the Bible 
in the Bible, a passage in the Bible, or a general theological doctrine that still boggles your mind. You maybe believe it to be true anytime you think about that. You, t- you don't really understand it fully. You're going to just chalk that one up to, yep, I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to trust the Word on that. Um, I'd, I'd love for you to have a passage. If you, don't, if you know every passage of what you believe about every passage, it's awesome. Um, so then go with a doctrine that still blows your mind. Drew, you have like 50 of these. Okay, so. I'll give you one. I, 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 to be fair, I read these questions. Let you yeah. think about it. So, yes. Yeah, um, the passage where um, we have someone in the Old Testament, um, a spirit is risen from their intermediate state. Uh, by a necromancer that like when I, I was your intern when I first read that passage and I said is this real <laughs> I did not did know you grow up in? I did not know that that was a thing that one really I remember that moment being so, a I did not think that that was that was a real thing I wasn't a ghost guy yeah yeah so, no this is this is the witch of Endor Sa- yeah, at the behest of Saul conjuring up the spirit of, of Samuel. One of the things I love about that passage, it gives me a, an opportunity to freak people out when they say, do you believe in ghosts? I'm like, at least one. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I love that answer. Exactly. And then I don't know what to do with it past that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I got, I, we've been reading through the Bible stuff, and, and one that every time I come across it, I had this little conversation with God, God, I, I'm going to trust you with this one, but uh, Balaam, is the whole story is weird that they that they call this guy to to come put a curse the the Moabite king calls Balaam to come put a curse on the people of Israel because they're coming towards the promised land and he's scared they're going to overrun them and there's sometimes where Balaam is like seen throughout the Bible he's seen as almost this kind of witch doctor evil person and yet he'll even say things like I cannot go against Yahweh my Lord and what he says and uh, and there's times when he at first he won't go because he doesn't want to go against what God wants and then God says you can go and so he goes and then God shows up to kill him for going <laughs> and then and then it, it, God uses a donkey to talk to him and the whole thing just keeps getting more and more bizarre <laughs> and then it, it gets weird and then it gets really weird um, no and then but but like after after that story it almost sounds kind of like Balaam did so it, the donkey speaks to him and, and God says, hey, I was going to kill you, but make sure when you go that you will only bless the people of Israel. So that's all Balaam does. He goes and blesses the people of Israel over and over again, does what God wants. And then for the rest of the Bible, every time Balaam's referenced, he's referenced, referenced as this evil, wicked person that you don't want to be like. And, and that kind of, like, I still kind of wrestle with what all the things that are, what's all going on there in that situation. But Uh, am I allowed to say? Yeah, I, I, I would say it's always strange to me that Eve didn't go, hey, dude, there's like a snake talking to me over here. This is really weird. <laughs> like, that's for, honestly, like, for all of the ones, that is so bizarre to me. Going back to the to the donkey thing, I mean, that makes even more yeah, sense yeah. to me. That, But then Eve's going, why is this snake talking to me? That's a little yeah. bit strange. And so... Um, yeah, I guess that would yeah, be Yeah, well, like in the Balaam one, I always think it's funny, like, Balaam, tur- uh, his donkey turns like, why are you hitting me? And Balaam's not like, whoa, what the heck? He just engages in conversation because you won't do what I say, stupid donkey, right? And it's just like, how often has this happened that you just pop right into conversation with your donkey here? You know what I mean? Uh, mine is probably the, the entire Exodus account in terms of I try to put myself in Pharaoh's place, and I don't get why he doesn't bail early it's like dude 
you keep losing. Why do you, why are you digging your heels in? And then it takes God hardening his heart. And the, you know, that opens up a new can of worms for uh, those of us that kind of hold to a doctrine of, of humanitarian free will. Yeah. The answer why Pharaoh doesn't do it is A, because Pharaoh hardens his heart, and B, because God hardens his heart. And it keeps going, yeah, it keeps going back and forth between saying Pharaoh and then saying God, and yeah. never really just says only this or whatever. Yeah. You know? and, I, and I 100% hold to the fact that God has every right in his sovereignty to do that. And I, I can't figure out the logic. Okay. Um, two people have asked this. If God's all-knowing, all-powerful, why would he uh, create Satan or allow Satan to continue to exist in Rome and allow happen what we know happens in Genesis 3? Did, did my kids send that in to you? <laughs> it, was, it was. It was Hudson. He was texting me. Actually, he has a burner phone. So he's, <laughs> talking about he's actually been, they've been asking me this kind of question a lot. Last if you week, don't know so. what that is, parents, you need to find out. <laughs> So what you were about to answer for? Well, I, I mean, honestly, I've, I've, I've been asked this question a lot lately, interestingly <laughs> enough. This one that keeps coming back. Why did God do all, why did God allow all of this to happen, right? So why did the fall take place? Why did Genesis 3, why did that happen? And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I really don't think there's a possible answer to it other than that God in his divine prerogative deemed it worth it. And I, I really don't think it goes further than that. And I think when we try to understand it from a human perspective, um, it seems like God desired to be known for his greatness um, in the redemption of fallen humanity. And so he allows that to happen. And then you go, why? And, you know, it's interesting when, when, when the Bible is pressed with that question, why, why, why does God do that? It, it typically comes back to this response, because? Yeah. That's the Deuteronomic response, is that God even says, I chose you because I chose you. I didn't chose you, choose you because of you. I chose you because of me. No, but what about me? No, I chose you because of me. It wasn't in you. And so I think that the whole plan of God and the whole, even, even like the mystery of, of, yeah. of how all of these work, all of these things work out, um, is not to be answered. I, I think so often we look for the answer so that we can understand. And I, I keep coming back to this, um, that there are times when we understand to the point of understanding that we no longer are caught up in adoration or worship. And I don't think God is, is primarily to just be understood. But the awe of him and the I don't understand why of him yeah. really leads us to worship. So I, I think it's outside of our ability. And I would even argue this. I think it's outside of our ability to ever, ever, ever know. To, like in, in line with that answer, though they give an answer, but in line with the idea that this is to, to result in the worship of God, um, there are a, a number of major traditions, church traditions, um, that would say this. Um, primarily, this would be like a big reformed answer. And then there's a, an offshoot of that called Molinism. And Molinism is a, is a tradition that tries to look at all the, um, if history had happened differently, um, if, if Satan had never been created, what would the world look like? And, and both the reformed tradition and the Molinist tradition would say that things happened as they did in such a way that they would maximize the glory and praise that God would receive. Um, that it, to, to create a world where Satan does not exist and humanity does not fall and God therefore has no need to redeem um, actually is not, a, is not necessarily in and of itself a better world. 
The, the world that God created under his stewardship and under his care, fallen though it is, results in the maximum amount of his glory and praise. And all of that is speculation. But it's a fair answer that actually sits pretty well with what Jim has, la- has, has laid out for us. And I would just argue, like, I, we, though we do not know the origins of Satan real well, we think, some people think from certain prophecies that we, we maybe have some, some stuff in Isaiah and I think in Ezekiel about, mm-hmm. um, about what we call Lucifer and all these things. But uh, we, we don't know exactly. But I, I would say we believe pretty strongly that God does not create anything evil that God does not create wickedness, God does not, that everything that is sin or sinful is merely a perversion of the good that God has created. So I don't believe that God sat out and said, I'm going to make the most evil person to be against me. Um, and so he, God can't make evil. God can't do wicked things or sinful things. And so everything is a corruption or perversion of. So whatever Satan's origin was, I don't believe he was originally yeah. created as yeah. Satan, the, the adversary, the one against God. He was created I mean, more than likely as some kind of angel, even though we don't know exactly. But Okay. Um, one last question, and then we're going to spend some time going around if anyone has any questions in here. So be ready for that. How can a mass murderer go to heaven and a good, kind doctor not go to heaven? Easy. Easy. I mean, truly. And I, I, I don't want to – I'm not saying easy to uh, appreciate as a human, but I will say, like, as a follower of Jesus Christ and as somebody who understands amazing grace, um, theologically, uh, and then my heart has to catch this, it is the issue of repentance, it is, it is that God finds greater joy in someone who will humble themselves and who will repent than, than they do in any of the righteous-ish deeds of this doctor that you describe. And so uh, it, 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 I think when you, when you think about just how self-sufficient God is and how great God is, and so he's not doing, he's not acting out of this compulsion um, from within him. Uh, where there is any kind of like need or you know any of that and so this is truly out of his own kindness so to me it actually makes more sense as i understand the gospel that at the very center of the gospel is the uh, is the um, the acknowledgement of sin and brokenness before god and the humble and contrite heart god will not refuse and so when you say what would God love more, a broken, terrible, terrible, terrible sinner, or a righteous and proud, good human term person, it seems like one gets God and one thinks they're God, (laughs) is how I hear that. One thinks they're God and one gets God. And the Bible consistently describes our good doctor as wicked, our goodness as wicked, and humble, contrite, um, repentance. I, I don't just try to put on the scale where God is in comparison to, you know, there's, there's me and then, you know, Andrea is a little more spiritual than me. And, um, and, but where's God on that page? Oh yeah. It's, he's not even on the it's page. It's this weird issue that we don't, I don't know if we are able to even say this, but the truth that like I sit closer to the mass murderer than I do to God. You know what I mean? I'm, yeah. I'm what, much more like the mass murderer than I am like Jesus or like, you know what I mean? And so we're all on this. I, I almost said earlier when you asked favorite 
favorite chapter or best chapter. I almost said Romans 5, but that's mostly just because it's probably got my favorite verse. But, yeah. but God shows his great love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul doesn't qualify that level of sin. Um, the, the love he gives to us does not, does not stand on any, however much or little you have sinned. It's offered. He, he, he loved us enough to die for all of us no matter what. And so the only, the only issue is whether someone reaches out and takes hold of that love and, and trusts in Christ as Savior, regardless of how much sin there was in their life up to that point or anything like that. So A piece I want to I hinge on that, too, is that think of the, the power, um, the efficacy, the effective work of the blood of Jesus Christ. So to me, the fact that the blood of Christ can, can cover any sin, then all of a sudden it's not even a matter of degree of sin. So Christ can, it's not like he barely saves really bad people. Like he fully saves the worst of humanity. Um, and so to me, it's a, it's a. And uh, it takes no less saving for him to save that doctor. <laughs> we often, th that question comes from two poor estimations. A doctor, first of all. First of all. But it's two poor estimations. It's an overestimation of the doctor's goodness and it's an extreme underestimation of the power of God's grace. So here's a spinoff question. I lied, sorry. <clears throat> but First John seems to indicate that there are those who claim or believe themselves to be children of God, people who have put their faith in Jesus, but who continue to walk in darkness, and therefore they have a false sense of security. And then there are those Christians who have to continue to confess their sins, so at this continued process of struggling through sin. Where is the line of those who are walking in darkness, have a false sense of security, and those who are just struggling, believe, immature believers who continue to fall short in an area. I should probably let Jim answer a little bit of this because uh, I feel like I've spent half of our relationship thinking I was that one uh, walking in <laughs> darkness, and I, I just know I'm, I know I'm going to hell. I know, you know, in those days, Jim happened to talk me off the ledge a little bit on that. Um, Take my hand, Drew. Yeah, Take my it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I mean, there is the issue again. It's I think it's First John one eight and nine. If we say we have no sin. Uh, then we deceive ourselves. Where and then if, but in one nine, if if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that does that is uh, that that uh, word, way to you know sum that up is Jim's word repentance. That a a life summarized, a life um, that is kind of encapsulated by repentance, a recognition of my falling short and seeking to confess and then grow in that. Um, as is at least a great first marker. That's a that's a huge one for me. So, you know, it's it's we really are plagued with doubting that we're doubting that we're doubting. It, it's just it's this crazy rabbit hole yep. that we go down that I think is, is is broken. And I even wonder sometimes if it's not somewhat an, uh, demonic to have me doubt my doubts and then doubt my doubt that I'm doubting. Um, I think there can be some foolishness to that. Um, on, on the other hand, I think it is good to assess. Paul says in, first, in 2 Corinthians 13, 13, 5, examine yourselves so that you might know that you are in the truth. So there are ways in which we can know and we can recognize. Um, and so uh, hopefully what you're not asking is, how do you know like God knows? Well, I would need to be God to know like that. So I'm not even supposed to know like God knows. I'm supposed to know as best as Jim can know. And so that's why we ask questions of one another. Do, have you repented? 
And then Drew can say yes or no. How do you know that you really have repented? Okay, that's just, it, it can be a bit of a silly question. Um, that's why Jesus says there are signs of these things. There is a, there is a fruit that would come. Um, so when you see the fruit of the Spirit, when you see those kinds of things, you have greater confirmation that the hope that you are placing in Jesus Christ or the repentance that you're going through is genuine and real, and then that brings confidence and so that you can know. Um, and so going back to how Jesus uses similar language at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, um, you think you've done all these amazing things for me, but, you, but you've never really followed me. So away from me, I do not know you. Um, but Jesus doesn't say, and, and so really nobody knows if they're a follower of me. No, Jesus gives tons of evidence that you're a follower of me. And that's why I think that when you use continually the word of God, spirit of God alongside the people of God, that you can come to a reasonable understanding of the hope that we have in Christ. Christ and an assurance of the faith that we have in terms of what he has accomplished. I would stress this as I, as I close on this. Um, I believe that I am saved because Jesus Christ has promised that more than anything else, even more than the degree of my own repentance. I believe more in the work of Christ than I do in anything else. That's good. Anyone out there? Steve has a handheld mic. Anyone have any last Something? questions for sure. us before we close this thing down? Andrea, anything? I tried. I tried, babe. Miss Rebecca. Um, along this lines that you were talking about being saved, so that hey, Rebecca. Good, good hey, we have Chick Fil A. I don't know if you. <laughs> He's getting well over here. Um, so along those lines of of that being saved, so. Like, when is that you're saved when? Because I know uh, things, you know, other religions like Catholicism, right? They say it's, like, not upon until death. And how, when, is, when does the salvation happen? Justification, sanctification, glorification. You were saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. And so there's a sense in which it's, it has happened. It's happening, and it will happen. And... To say much beyond that, we're going to start stumbling into things. You want to say no, something? No, no, no. no. Um, <laughs> so honestly, so yes, at the and when we put our faith in Jesus, we were declared righteous by God, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ did on our behalf. And then the sanctification process, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and this process of becoming having the image of God remade in us and becoming more and more like the sun and that fruit becoming bared in our life is showing what's going to happen to us someday when we are saved in glory. I also think, Rebecca, it's, it's important to, you know, when you, when you think about salvation, to think about being made whole, being made into our ultimate, um, uh, the way that God made me. So God made me, actually, to not be in this form, but to be a sanctified version of this, a saved version of this, a being saved version of this. And so that's why Justin was talking about to be justified, declared right, to be sanctified, to be made more holy, and then ultimately be glorified where that, that, that state comes to its final conclusion is the whole process of salvation. And so sometimes we throw around the one word where we're looking at like an entire concept. And so I like to think about it in terms of health, right? Am I healthy? Well, I don't have a cold and I don't think I have cancer, but I'm probably not totally healthy, right? Like I could lose some weight. And so there is something that I have that is healthy. I'm not sick. Well, not really sick, but if I went to see a doctor, I bet he would have a tons of things that I could be working on where I could be more. And I think the same thing is true somewhat spiritually, that there is a sense in which 
um, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are, we are, we are justified. We are, we are made right before God. As we are filled with the Spirit and are, um, and, and, are, and are following Him, now all of a sudden we are growing in our health. We are growing in our wholeness. We are growing in our sanctification. And then one day when Jesus Christ returns and we're in our final state, then everything will be fixed. I almost hear within that question something I've thought about and written a lot on lately is this. We don't want to like assume what we're doing is attaining this righteousness, this saved state for us. We don't want to be the people who are assuming we are working to get our salvation. And yet there's the reality of God gives us these commands. Jesus himself gives commands. He has these expectations. Lord, Lord, and yet I never knew you. Wait, why? Because you didn't do the will of my father. Um, he's going to separate the, separate the sheep and the goats. How is he going to know? Well, I was hungry and you didn't feed me and I was thirsty. You didn't give me something to drink. And so there's this obvious, your work, the things that you do show the reality of who you are and whose you are. And so it's not as if we're attaining our salvation and we don't have to feel bad about saying we do need to obey the commands of God as his people who have been justified. Yet we also know there's nothing we could do to get God to owe us that somehow I was good enough. I was the good enough doctor that I saved enough people and I did enough humanitarian good in the world that now God owes me. It's like I'm, I'm taking a ticket to heaven, mm -hmm. see all the good things that I've done. Now you owe me the salvation entrance. That's not how it works. No, Jesus did that. And now as his new people, we're able to do those things like obey him and live this new life. So is that cool? Hope. You sort of began to talk about this, and then you got derailed like you all do. Um, but my hey, question would hold be... Hold on, next question. <laughs> that's just called comedic timing. <laughs> yes. Um, so within, it could be general, but within the context of a Christian family, is it possible for a Christian to say, I forgive you for some hurt. I forgive you, but I do not want to reconcile with you our relationship no longer exists. What do you do with that? No. You just use you tell two that words person that mean the same thing. You tell that person to repent. Like, literally, here's my question of, do you see that picture in God? Do you see God ever saying, um, I, I will not reconcile to you. But I forgive you. But I forgive you. Like, it fundamentally breaks down. Like, it, it does not make any sense. Then now, you... you well, you're about to say the, that. The, the, the process of reconciliation is complicated. And the process, I, I, I am now saying to people, and I don't even mind even hearing it to myself, um, so you can, someone can say this to me, uh, the degree to which you are even mature is going to be the degree to which you can forgive and reconcile. And sometimes we want to look at it like it's just, a, I call it the X and the Y, but no, there's a Z axis. There's like a third dimension to it, which is not just forgive or not forgive or reconcile or not reconcile, but the degree to which we can reconcile. And I believe that maturity is much of the unspoken Z axis, that third quadrant that just is not even an on and an off switch, but the, the dimmable up to the bright, so to speak. And so I don't understand, uh, if I, I would say to that person, um, is that how you see God's relationship with you? And then they would say, oh, I mean, I think the answer is no. Then how are you processing this? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. 
um, it seems like a really, really, really poor understanding. Um, a, if that's, they have to think that, that God's doing that if that's what they're wanting to do. Most people do this, though, and, and I tell me, hope you can tell me if I'm wrong. They usually go, yeah, but I can't do it. Right? That's what they say. And then I'm going, I don't know how, you, I don't know how we as Christians say, I can't do it. And I have the Holy Spirit in me. I don't know how those two sentences fit together. Now, you might say, man, I'm going to need a lot of time to work through this, or I'm really struggling to work through this. I'm, I get it. Patience as long as the day is called today. But I don't know how you ever have like this hard line. Uh, again, begin with God's attitude towards us in Christ. But, but and I don't know how that, you get there. In that, we say we never see God... Uh, we never see God saying, I will not reconcile with you. But we do see that God says that on the condition of repentance. Oh, yes. sure. God yes. doesn't say, hey, live your life, do whatever you want, yep. and we're reconciled yep. in the end anyway. Yep. Yep. And so it's, it's we reconcile when you repent and, and place your faith in me, come return to me. And so that's the same with a human relationship. You yes. say, right, that I yes. can't, even though I think I can hopefully grow in a place where I can, if Justin has wronged me, even if he doesn't repent, I hope that I can grow in a place where I no longer hold to bitterness. Yep. Yeah. But I can't actually, I, I don't have the ability to go through the full process of forgiveness if there's no repentance on his end yep. to forgive. Um, I think that that has to be, and I would also say, and I think you're, you're hitting on this, that our relationship may look different for a time sure. afterwards. Even if he repents, even if I forgive, there there could be a broken trust. There could be a there could be some woundedness that is still kind of slowly healing. Those kinds of things. Uh, but but that, like you said, if he is truly repentant, um, I don't know how I can model yeah. God and and not be forgiving. And I love how the parables basically say hope that the way in which you forgive is the way in which you'll be forgiven. And so I think that when you're doing this, that's a great reminder. The degree to which you forgive others is the degree to which God will forgive you. So um, should I meet someone that actually has that attitude? Without, without, I take no joy in this, but just say, just so you, just, I want you to know what you're biting off. Yep. Forgiveness is transactional. It's a real important biblical forgiveness is transactional. Drew must extend forgiveness to Justice and uh, to Justin, and Justin must repent. And reconciliation is the result. And when there's no reconciliation, there's no such thing. Drew can offer it, keeps it outstretched yeah. the whole time, but actually conditioned on Justin repenting, Drew can't actually forgive him until he repents. The transaction never happens. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's Jared. Really great shirts, by the way. Ripping the table, I like Thanks. it. Yep. Um, so my question kind of has to do with uh, one that I sent into Justin. Um, that we didn't answer. That you didn't answer. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I'm a, I'm a senior history major, and the, the farther along I've got into it, the more I've realized that uh, becoming a historian means becoming a skeptic. Like, that is what they want to foster in the people who are becoming historians. Everything oozes skepticism. And so I think... As I've grown more in, in trust in the Bible and in my faith and in what I know, the more I want to pull back. And, if, and then I find it hard to do what they're asking me to do, to be a historian. So I guess my question is, is how, can I, how can I continue to keep what I know to be true at the <laughs> forefront without just completely mm. stepping back and not being able to do what I'm being asked to do? <laughs> Sometimes it, I mean, there, we if we look at thinkers throughout history, there are those who then rise up and create a new paradigm, right? 
I'd love to like look at you fully, but I feel like I don't, maybe I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't. Okay, no, stop no, it. No, um, break it. Stop that. Right, and so there's the temptation. Okay, if he I want to breaks everything. That's literally. True. He just one one time, Kyle needed a plumbing issue fixed at this church, and I pulled a toilet <laughs> out of the wall. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> Wow, that that happened. Okay, so sometimes you know you have to create a new paradigm. So you feel trapped. If I want to succeed in this field, if I want this professor to pass me, if I want to get into this field, I have to play by their rules, and you can feel like there's no way out. And so I I, I totally can understand that. And the reality is, if you have a passion for this and you have this God-oriented way in which you feel like this this is not the right path forward then maybe you show a way forward in which you are a historian in a way that does honor the Lord and honor the doctrines that you hold to be true, that you can love and have a passion for history and trying to communicate that to people, and yet at the same time hold true to the doctrines of the church. So, I, I, I was just going to say, to be Debbie Downer, the Lord has not guaranteed all Christians that they can be faithful historians and follow him well. Like at some point, you might have to to draw a line and say, according to the people I'm working with, according to what they would like me to do, and according to the faith that I hold, uh, we're just going to have to kind of part ways here. But I'm also the guy that would recommend the old college try to go and use their, like, I'm a big, I'm a skeptic. And so... When skeptic shows up and wants me to become skeptical, I'm going to skeptically ask, why? Like, just why? Tell me why. Why do I have to do it your way? And I will skeptic my way through their nonsense, and I might get a D in the class. Well, Ryan's, <laughs> but Ryan's point is really good. First of all, the Bible doesn't uh, – I don't know if Christianity means we can't be skeptical. Uh, I really do believe that's one of the things <laughs> I love about, like, screws when I talk to Mormon friends, you know um, – I tell them I appreciate your subjective feelings of the truth of what you what you believe that you can feel it deep inside you. The thing I love about Christianity is that I I, I experience both the su- subjective confirmation of my faith and the objective confirmation as I study it. With a with a I don't know if skepticism is the word, but with a like I, I want to know the truth and I'm not just taking it at face value. I want to know the truth of these things. But I do think you know it's funny when when we tell people to be skeptical of things and and skepticism put up the the only thing we want to challenge everything except for our skepticism. That's the only yeah, thing that yeah. becomes the high authority is my own doubt, is the highest authority over everything. And if it can't match up to my doubt, um, and, and sometimes I think it is worth, as, as Ryan said, to be skeptical of our skepticism a little bit and go, wait, wait, why is it that, uh, that I, am the, I am the standard for whether something can be true or not, whether I buy it or not is the standard, you know? So. Well, and I'll tell you, especially like studying history, like just tell them you don't believe anything. Like, be the skeptic to the nth degree. And all of a sudden, they can't. Like, and this is what's happening in both philosophy with, with deconstructive hermeneutics and that. I mean, with, with Nietzschean skepticism. Um, when you take it to the nth degree, it folds on itself. That's, the, that's kind of ultimately where it resides. And so the only way out of that is this now tribal... Um, I'm going to choose this aspects of history, or I'm going to choose this aspect of philosophy, or this aspect of of of, of religious thought. Um, and so I would argue that as historians, they they still have rules, and they still have so uh, they like skepticism so far, and then everybody agrees that we believe with these skeptic ideas, and then we stop doubting and we start believing. And so I'm a little bit like Ryan in that sense, where when, when someone really wants to play the skepticism card, 
I take it to the point where they're just like, okay, I don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> In Jim, the end, Jim's really good at taking a lot of things <laughs> to that point. <laughs> well, but it does. It, it shows you. It really does. This is what we see a lot in postmodernism is it really shows you the foolishness of a lot of these modern endeavors to try to get to the bottom historically, to try to get to the bottom philosophically, to try to get to the bottom. What we really find out is, is that because we are subjects, we can only know as subjects and God can only know as the, as the ultimate. And, and that gap in between is I, actually, I would say that's where faith comes in. It's, it's not that it doesn't have an objective element. It's just that I will always look at it subjectively. And I think history would be much of the same way. But uh, play, the, play the skeptic card to the point where they ask you to leave. Yeah. Find their assumptions. Because what, what, what we're often skeptical of most are those who do not share my assumptions. And then I'm not very skeptical about my own assumptions. Find out what those are and ask good questions. Well, we are very appreciative of yeah, all no, of you Paul's that came. Paul's got something Paul? right there. Paul's Paul? going to be quick. I know Morgan does, too. No, this Paul right up here. Isn't this Paul? Yeah, this is Paul. This is Paul. I right, thought it was right Paul. Do you like the Chick-fil-A, Paul? I like the Chick-fil-A, yes. <laughs> Paul, by the way, goes to Eagle Heights, and he's here tonight. Is that it? <laughs> Take that, Brent. Brent Prentice is online. Take that, Brent Prentice. No, Brent's uh, here. He's, he's is just, Brent online? Yes, technologically. I like Brent. Oh. <laughs> Hi, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> So I had a question about biblical inerrancy. Could you just talk about what do we lose whenever we reject biblical inerrancy? Um, I, I think that once we believe the Bible has errors, we will then have to subjectively choose which texts we like and which texts that we don't like. Um, and then once we do that, we have found ourselves as inerrant. We're trusting ourselves over the biblical text. And I would trust the Bible more than I would ever trust myself. So if I have to pick something to be inerrant, either my thoughts or the biblical text, um, I try to always default to the biblical text, but really that's what we lose. And so a lot of people that say that the Bible is, um, to, even the concept of inerrancy is kind of silly, um, that the Bible is, is, is right and true when it comes to certain moralistic teachings, and in other areas it's not. I love to ask the question, well, which ones and how do you know? And then you get kind of trapped a little bit into that subjective objective uh, kind of paradigm. And so I choose to understand the Bible as without errors, as infallible because of its connection as, as God has ordained it. Um, and so I, I think you lose, um, over, it's over time, but you almost lose everything, to be honest with you. Once you, once you begin to have that, you, you really lose any authoritative voice to be able to speak that this is true. Um, and it proves itself out. We don't want authority for authority's sake. Like it, it, yeah. it bears itself out. So um, podcast number 94 <laughs> uh, and also number 96 are ones I would recommend that you go back and take a look at. Tiffany Bass has probably seen those four or five times <laughs> each. So you could also call Tiffany and you could even so check out her give headphones you the rundown of them. while you're there. Yeah, and so. it's not, it really isn't an exaggeration to say we begin to lose everything when we don't trust inerrancy. Marcion was a very pronounced heretic who was going down that path and just started cutting up the scriptures. Let's get rid of the Old Testament and let's get rid of anything spiritual in the Bible because those things obviously can't be true. The physical world is what there is and the spiritual, the, the Gnostic idea. And so it's not an over-exaggeration to say that we start losing everything very quickly. Any last questions? Last questions. Okay. Okay. 
Well, I So am. Morgan's sitting there going, no, we're out of time. We're, oh, the microphone? <laughs> but I'm going to ask Anyway, you. Okay. I have a question now. This is the I story love of my life Live with you guys, working with you guys. Okay. Um, so we talked about sin, Jim. Come back. Here yes, we go. Yes, yes, ma'am. We had to talk about sin, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. You talked some about the whole, what Hope had asked about repentance and forgiveness. But reconciliation, help me understand this because I could be wrong. From what I understand, it's, it's, it's bringing back together, restoring the relationship. However, oftentimes when I see forgiveness played out, um, like even within the, within the church setting between Christian people, people that are following Jesus, broken, still Christian people, um, there, is the, there is repentance and forgiveness, but relationships sometimes are not restored to what they were. I'm guessing, I know that that has something to do with our brokenness, obviously, sure. but is that biblically okay? I mean, I would say it's, it's biblically okay. First of all, I would even challenge this presupposition, Morgan, that what it was before was even good. Like it might've even felt good, but in the end it was shallow. So just to say, I want it to be what it was. You know, I don't know if I want, I don't want my marriage to be, Andrea and I have had probably stronger feelings for each other at certain times in our, in our married life. I don't know if I want to go back. I know she does not want to go back to what it was like when we were in high school. She would go, that wasn't real. And I would go, yeah, but it felt so much more. And so even the concept and reconciliation of going back and restoring, we use this language a lot, to what it used to be. That might have just been called shallow. So um, we're preaching, or you and I are teaching at Parent Connect this week. We're talking about when kids rebel. Um, when Andrew and I had to deal with this with, with one of our children in particular, I felt like God really impressed upon me. So do you still love them now that you know the truth about them? And I remember sitting and listening and thinking and praying through this. Now that I know the, a, real, a more real truth about my son, wow. Like, do I love an idealized version of my son or do I love my son? And I had to learn to love my son in spite of his sin. And so you and I have a relationship, Morgan, and then I really, really wrong you. It may take a long time for us to get back to here. But I would say, like, right now, or whatever the here is, that may not even be the proper place. Like, maybe God wants more for us. So be very careful assuming that we even know, like, um, how, uh, how right or how good our relationships are. That is so subjective. Which, again, like Drew put, I'm not against it. I'm going, just be very careful. Um, now, what you're describing is, but how do we move beyond it? I don't know how we don't constantly say, and this relationship could be more. So I never want to use it as an excuse. This could be more now that you have to deal with the ugliness of, of what I'm capable of kind of a scenario. But by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do a quick plug. Um, I'm in the process of working on my doctorate on this subject. And I really want, I mean, I'm going to need a lot of people to talk to about forgiveness issues. Um, and so I'm writing a lot on this. I'm studying a lot on this. And I really, uh, my, 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 my project is have to going to have some very uh, specific issues and working through specific relationships. And so if you're listening to this and you want to continue somewhat this conversation, I may actually need your help to kind of walk through what the biblical example is, and then in a real practical sense. Um, obviously, this is something that touches all of us, and uh, would, would love to continue that faith conversation with you. 
Well, we hope you guys enjoyed tonight. Hopefully you have enjoyed the first 100 episodes. Hopefully many more to come, the Lord willing. Actually, hopefully he comes back and we just get to talk face-to-face forever. Justin, what's our next episode about? Our next episode will be probably about marijuana. So we, uh, yeah, laugh, but reality is it's a big deal in our culture. Not only a lot of people using it, but now becoming legal in many senses. So how is the church supposed to think about and react to this thing that is upon us? So, um, Please continue to send us in your questions. We, we feel like we have a lot of conversations that you get to be in on, but we want to know what you're curious about, too. So if your question didn't get asked oh, here, oh, we will be sure oh. to get to them. Oh. I have free Chick-fil-A gift cards for you <laughs> right. people. He works there. I love you. He Come works on, there you got go. Got Morgan in the chat. There you go. They're gift. Those are real. Oh. Those are real gift you're cards, really people. Hitting people. To Chick-fil-A. Oh, oh, okay. You've thrown two of the guy that works there. He, oh. I think he owns Chick-fil-A. Okay. So anyway, I did. I got some Chick-fil-A gift cards as my way, our way of saying thank you. All right. Well, this is episode 100. See you later. See ya. See <laughs> ya.